Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam with Tariq Alameen. I am he. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. Also, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast uh, where, wherever you get your podcast at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify. I could keep going on and on. But you will find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA. Now, before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Recycle Processes. We thank you very much for your continued support. Uh, and with that, Radio Islam family, uh, we begin. I'm going to give you three dates that are going to be important for today's conversation. August 5th, September 22nd, and September 27th. August 5th is the date that the Indian government revoked Article 370. Right? Huge implications for Kashmir. Um, and he hopes for an autonomous Kashmir basically go out of the window with the revocation of Article 370. Not to mention the fact that uh, Kashmir has been under military occupation for decades. We'll get into that uh, more in depth as we go on. September 22nd, energy field in Houston, Texas. 50,000 folks show up, uh, largely, primarily, almost exclusively Indian Americans show up to welcome Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who many, it's fair to say that he's India's Donald Trump, or maybe Donald Trump is the U.S.'s Narendra Modi, right? Either way, you get a sense of the cloth that he is cut from. Um, we'll delve more into that as well. September 27th, Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan. He addresses the U.N. General Assembly and among other things, he addresses uh, the urgent need for U.N. involvement in Kashmir. And I'll share a quote. What will happen when the curfew is lifted is a bloodbath. He said if a conventional war starts between the two countries, anything could happen. Right. Nuclear powers. This is true. Anything could happen. Joining us to help us get some perspective on these issues and to see how they are related, uh, to see their impact. We have Professor Janaid Ahmed joining us from the UK right now. Uh, he is the director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics, assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan, and secretary general of the International Movement for a Just World. Welcome back, brother. Welcome back. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamualaikum. So good to be with you again. Indeed, indeed. So just kind of tie this all together for us. And, and what, are, what are we looking at right now? Uh, and how important was his address with regard to the Howdy Modi event? And uh, just where are we at right now? What do you see? Right. Well, again, uh, thank you for having me. And um, I think it would be useful for the listeners uh, to have just a little bit of context about, uh, first of all, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and where he is sort of located on the political and ideological spectrum and what he represents uh, within India itself. Mm -hmm. So, uh, first of all, it should be said that what uh, the his political party, the BJP, uh, and the associated organizations uh, that the, the, the organ, particularly one organization that has been uh, doing grassroots mobilization since the 1920s, basically a, a, a sister organization 
of all of the European fascist movements of that same period. So this uh, and that organization is called the RSS, of which he's a proud card carrying me uh, member, uh, the Prime Minister Modi. Mm -hmm. So this is the context of uh, this political party, the BJP, its roots. And that's what Modi represents, a very uh, Hindu nationalist, uh, exclusivist, anti-minorities, primarily Muslims, but, but also Christians and other minorities. And uh, he has uh, taken a very belligerent stance uh, internally towards Muslims and, of course, towards uh, its eternal enemy, uh, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, we have to understand the background of, of where he's coming from and where he has led India to. I mean, this is not to say that this has always been uh, the context in India. India, in fact, has had... Uh, very uh, different types of leaders uh, and has had very different types of political stances internationally. This is a phenomenon that's emerged over the past uh, two to three decades. And now Modi, uh, this man who was chief minister of a province, uh, of, of a state, the state of Gujarat, mm -hmm. where in 2002, about 2,000 Muslims were killed in a pogrom there and he did nothing about it and it was so visible to everyone that he was complicit in this that he was denied a visa entry into the u.s because of this for many years he could not enter now of course we have howdy modi right. uh, and uh things uh th that doesn't matter anymore his past doesn't matter uh and what he represents doesn't matter because more or less, uh, Trump doesn't represent much much different. It's the convergence of both the, the Hindu supremacy of uh, Modi with the uh, white supremacist trends that uh, Donald Trump represents. Uh, one could then easily see uh, why Donald Trump also landed there in Houston, uh, Texas, at this uh, grand energy stadium with 50,000 plus Indian Americans there uh, to to greet and in fact to open up the entire uh, celebration of Modi's visit uh, to to Texas specifically and to the United States, which is unprecedented uh, uh, and 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 quite ridiculous in fact. So yeah, and almost as an endorsement, uh, a mutual endorsement of each other of uh, Narendra Modi in. Uh, in India and and in elections there, him and his political party, and Trump actively calling for uh, and Modi encouraging it to, for the Indian Americans to vote for Trump in the elections here, and mm. uh, so, so uh, that was certainly one factor for Trump too to get the uh, this uh, the, the wealthy sections of the Indian American community to uh, both financially support him and to electorally support him. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the other factors uh, explaining this relationship, now the, this relationship between India uh, and the United States have uh, gradually strengthened since uh, the past, you can argue, three decades, since the 1990s. Because mm -hmm. we have to remember that before then, uh, India was more or less in the non-aligned camp 
and had closer relationship with uh, the old uh, Soviet Union. Right. In the 1990s, it undertook a whole bunch of neoliberal uh, capitalist reforms, and it's just a huge market, you know, over a billion people. And so during the Clinton administration, followed by the Bush Jr. administration, etc. So that was one incentive. Uh, the the, the in, intense investment in India, as well as you know, Indian IT professionals uh, uh, saturating all of Silicon Valley and and everywhere else. So grabbing them because India has some of the finest uh, these uh, technical institutions. So uh, there was that type of exchange as well. But what has happened really under uh, well, it started under Obama is the deep military security relationship that developed between the two countries as well. And the, the purpose of, of that basically for Washington is that to enlist India as uh, the main player there in the, uh, in the Asian context uh, to contain, help it contain and circle uh, China. Uh, and so it has been using India for, for that purpose. Uh, they have, uh, the Indians have allowed their bases, their ports to be used by the American military. And the next month they're going to conduct the first ever joint exercises of the Army, Navy, uh, and the Air Force. Uh, and all of this is uh, also, once again, to uh, get a reassurance a reaffirmation from Modi that he is committed uh, to this American project of containing the rise of China uh, by whatever means possible. You know, right now it's trade wars. Mm-hmm. It could go to something else uh, later on. So so that's a central factor uh, in all of this, the, the Chinese factor in that relationship. But of course, beyond that, it is um, it is the investment in this huge market. It is the desire by uh, Trump to have uh, Modi invest in the, in the U.S. buy oil, oil much more expensive uh, than they were getting from Iran, uh, but buy it now from the U.S. Uh, and Modi, just like uh, a lamb, just listened uh, and took orders from, uh, from Washington on this. Uh, India used to be the second largest oil importer from Iran, but... You know, after the U.S. has been threatening the whole world, anyone that does any trade, uh, India just followed that as well. So uh, that is uh, uh, some context, maybe a bit too much. No, no, no. That's great. About where Modi is coming from and what the relationship of the United States and India has uh, been like uh, for the past three decades and how it's kind of intensified and escalated, uh, particularly towards the end of the Obama administration when he announced his pivot to Asia. The pivot to Asia was, it sounds like a really nice term in which, you know, oh, we want to now go and focus on building partnerships in Asia. Well, it was kind of that, building partnerships, but building partnerships to basically contain and to encircle China. That's what the pivot to Asia was all about. And they realized that the ma- one of the major uh, players there is, of course, India. And so now, along with other American 
you know, allies like uh, Japan and Australia, uh, India becomes the one that is uh, obviously one, the one country that's bordering China. Uh, and so very strategic in this uh, in this point of view. Could you talk a bit about how, uh, you know, how Trump is looking to benefit from uh, Modi's presence here uh, with the uh, with the Indian population uh, and how how important it is to see that the this this peaceful coexistence that we have here uh, in the United States, at least, you know, that's not something you hear about often. You, you don't hear about dust ups between Hindus and Muslims here in the U.S. Uh, but how important is it to bring that type of a sentiment here? Uh, and is that something that you think has been waiting on uh, that that some folks, some, some some Indians who are here who have been possibly waiting to act on sentiments, uh, anti-Muslim sentiments um, here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think that what has happened is a uh, shift here as well. We spoke about the shift within the Indian body politic, uh, but also uh, the historically, uh, the majority of the Indian American community would have voted Democrat. Right. Um, but what Trump is attempting to do is to change that dynamic, and he may be able to succeed at it and because of this the, this politics of kind of the, the common uh, card of Islamophobia that both Modi and Trump used so successfully uh, to whip up this hysteria, uh, that was done, I mean, even at the Howdy uh, Modi rally. You know, Modi was just um, genuflecting and prostrating himself before uh, King uh, Trump as a king, uh, mm-hmm. and saying that he is—he uh, really knows how to deal with uh, terrorism and so on. And we're trying to deal with it too. And it was—it was all code for obviously Muslims and Islamophobia and, and this type of thing. So. Uh, I think that yeah, Trump is 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 now capitalizing on Indian Americans who have been financially very supportive of uh, a lot of these right wing uh, movements within India itself, of the BJP, of Modi's campaign, of sending money from here to there, uh, and this has been thoroughly researched. And I think he he is now saying that look. Oh, you know, I'm on the same page as Modi. We are, we're really close. You know, they held hands for the longest time. Rarely see Trump uh, doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he he did want to enlist the support of Indian American community, uh, sections of which are, are, are quite wealthy, and to also polarize uh, the, the Indian American community the same way that's going on in India itself. That is between Hindus and Muslims. Um, And so so one of the funniest uh, parts of this was that uh, that when they were awarding famous Indian Americans, so one one Indian American that wanted to go uh, to the rally, but who happened to be Muslim, was this Hassan Minhaj character. And and he he was denied entry into it uh and he tried uh, very hard through multiple ways yet at the cer- ceremony itself 
he was awarded and he was on screen uh, for, you know, oh, look, Indian Americans. And so, but he wasn't allowed to go into the rally. So, uh, it, so it's, it's clear that it's all, that the attempt is also to polarize uh, Indian American community between uh, the Hindus and the Muslims. This is uh, what's, what's going on. And so Trump is, uh, Trump is trying to, to, to benefit from a very wealthy community from an alliance that he knows will uh, is faithfully uh, obedient to what Washington says, uh, and uh, particularly, you know, since his uh, trade wars with China, uh, India becomes even more uh, of an of an asset uh, in that sense for uh, for for Trump and and, and the political establishment here. Mm. And at one point, I think in previous conversations we've had, we talked about how the shift from uh, seeing Pakistan as um, in favorable terms, how that has been undermined by some in uh, successive, uh, successive administrations um, uh, with regard to how they've related to uh, or they've been perceived to relate to um, uh, uh, the Taliban or Al Qaeda or, you know, so, um, securing their borders, you know. Um, but if you could talk a bit about how uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan's how he is being received um, and how uh, what, what position Pakistan plays uh, right now with regard to this right wing nationalism uh, and violence that's taking place, you know, against Muslims within India uh, and specifically regarding the um, the situation in Kashmir right now. Right. And so I, I tried to give a little context about uh, the situation in, in India uh, and uh, where the uh, political uh, establishment has moved so far to the to the right. Uh, and so just for a little context for Pakistan. Now, Pakistan, we, we have to remember, uh, just at least since uh, the war on terror was declared and the invasion of Afghanistan happened uh, in Initially, you know, it's a great non-NATO ally in the war, but within a year or two, uh, the the narrative and the discourse from uh, Western mainstream media, punditry, politicians changed very quickly. Uh, and, of course, most importantly, the uh, military officials and the CIA that Pakistan is what is, is it's, uh, playing a double game. It's, uh, it's actually a rogue country, failed state. And and then all of those uh, kind of orientalist tropes started to be uh, repeated and recycled about uh, Pakistan just being and just being part of the same game. Really, can't really be trusted, and they're not doing enough uh, to help us uh, fight uh, the, the Taliban and terrorism. And, and this is why we we can't win in Afghanistan, despite at one time having one hundred forty thousand NATO troops. Uh, there, uh, so, right. but it was it was all. I mean, all, all of this was was mainly uh, to uh, to uh, as a used as a pretext for their own failure to uh, uh, to stabilize Afghanistan. That is their own arrogant, incompetent, and very brutal occupation mm-hmm. of NATO, uh, U.S. NATO forces, as well as the uh, incredibly corrupt puppet regimes that they have had uh, imposed in Afghanistan. So, but but all but the convenient way to explain all those problems has always been well, Pakistan must be supporting 
them from uh, their side of the border and mm-hmm. basically just blame Pakistan. And so uh, this has been the narrative uh, for quite a while. And Washington think tanks and 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 even government officials uh, and certainly the media has uh, has been, you know, completely uh, condemning Pakistan for all of this stuff, for every evil that goes on in the region, whether it's uh, something in India, something in Afghanistan, something anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like you blame uh, a hurricane, like El Nino for everything, or you blame <laughs> Pakistan for, for, for everything that's going on. Now, with the election of Imran Khan, uh, things have, have certainly changed. I mean, it, it is important to mention that uh, Pakistan has also been cursed by some very um, pathetic and corrupt civilian politicians that have often made military rule in the country look good uh, mm. and, and better. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the one of one of the uh, downsides to the political history of Pakistan. Even though even the recent one before uh, Imran Khan is that you've had leaders that are just uh, incredibly corrupt and uh, also. Uh, really didn't know how to manage the country and foreign policy and so on. With Imran Khan, things have changed dramatically. Mm. Uh, he is a well-respected uh, individual in the country. He was the former cricketer. Yes. Um, cricket, uh, for an American audience that may not know, uh, is a sport played in, in large parts of the world. And I don't so, think there's any, I don't think there's, there's an equivalent that has the same type of attraction that cricket has here in the U.S. I mean, some might say baseball um, or NFL or NBA, but I think that yeah. cricket probably is is probably in a in a space of its own um, as far as its um, yeah, attraction. Yeah, I, I think I think I think the only thing that I could compare to internationally would be uh, soccer. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Internationally, I think that 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 would be the only equivalent I can think of because. You know, cricket is played by all the unfortunately old colonial British colonial countries, right. the Commonwealth countries. So from from the West Indies to Australia to to the to the subcontinent where uh, you know people, it's it's uh, it is really a passion um, in India and in Pakistan and so on. So now Afghanistan even has a team. So oh, wow. uh, so he he was. Uh, uh, very uh, well known at that time as, as a great sportsman, a great leader, a captain, and he led Pakistan to the World Cup uh, championship in 1992, and so very much celebrated for that. Again, you know, uh, for a poor developing country, this is big, this big stuff. And when when you're defeating your former colonial masters, uh, whether it's the British, whether it's right. the Australians, <laughs> so, so. Uh, very respected for that, but after that, he um, his uh, charitable and philanthropic activities within the country were just amazing. He built the first uh, uh, ca- cancer fr- cancer hospital that offered free treatment uh, to people who could not afford it uh, in in uh, in Pakistan. It's a large hospital, and about eighty percent of the people there are not paying anything for the cancer treatment. Wow. Uh, it was re- re- remarkable. One of uh, the few uh, of these uh, institutions in the entire world. So, and he raised that money all by himself. He went up uh, to the U- 
U.S., abroad, England were well-known and uh, just for that cause. And it, then in 1997, um, I, and certainly he didn't have to, he, he, he basically decided that, look, for fundamental change in the country, he needs to join, uh, he needs to be involved in politics and political change. And since that time, um, he has been, he has, he has persevered and he has been relentless in his pursuit, uh, particularly against uh, the corrupt ruling elites of, of all the political parties. Yeah. It has been incredible how he has brought down literally the uh, leader, the leaders of all of the pol- uh, political parties, whether it's Nawaz Sharif, of the PMLN, uh, Zardari, of the PPP, Al-Taf Hussein, uh, NPM, all these, you know, may not have much <laughs> meaning to the listeners, but these are the big political parties in Pakistan, and he has gone after the big guns who have been incredibly corrupt and uh, who have plundered the country and have uh, put it in the very dire straits that it is in now. So, I mean, that, it really, that took a lot of courage Mm-hmm. Um, and and he and he really mobilized a lot of young people. Uh, my from my own campus, you know, young people going to his rallies and so on. So his, 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 uh, the name of his party was uh, the Tariqan Saf, the Movement for Justice. Mm. And the, so since since uh, particularly the war on terror, I mean, it was a if you had to narrow it down, it was two issues that. Uh, he 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 uh, basically was mainly concerned with that was the domestic inequality, the corruption of the elites, and the la- and and just uh, the, the way that the basic health, education, and uh, development for the bulk of the population has been robbed uh, from from them by these elites. And so he really wanted to transform the system in that way. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was his very scathing critique of the war on terror and Pakistan's participation in it, because as he correctly predicted, it would produce more terror, uh, more terrorism, more militancy, more antagonism and hostility in areas of Pakistan where the Pakistani military had never been into. Um, And so in the Northwest region bordering Afghanistan and to massive displacement in ki- killing of innocent civilians, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. allowing drone strikes to take place. So, so Imran Khan was very critical. That was what he was also very well known for. Uh, and he would come on Western media and, and say, you know, why he's critical. Uh, of course, you know, it, it, the uh, a liberal, uh, very pro-Western uh, voices and media in Pakistan and, and others within the West would just call them, you know, well, he's just anti-Western, anti-American. And it would just be, I mean, these are just infantile, you know, accusations. And they would not listen to his critique of actual the foreign policy and what's going on um, as part of the war on terror. And when he is actually trying to provide a resolution to that. And we have seen it recently where has, uh, you know, at the beginning of the trouble administration again he tried to uh, take the same line as previous administrations oh we're giving these billions to pakistan and they're not really helping uh just a few months afterwards i think pretty much when uh the uh, the, the u.s is now just 
<laughs> giving up on Afghanistan mm -hmm. after 19 years being there. He wrote a letter, unprecedented. He couldn't imagine that Trump would do this. He wrote a letter to Imran Khan, <laughs> very a sweet, nice letter asking him for him to help uh, uh, bring peace and, uh, to, mm. and negotiate settlement with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And of course, Imran Khan said, sure. I mean, that's what I've been saying from the beginning, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, so, so, uh, <laughs> so by Imran Khan, he uh, has, has held, uh, you know, held his own. And, and it culminated really like uh, this entire year uh, culminated, if you want to put it in these symbolic terms, in this speech that he delivered at the UN on, um, uh, on uh, this past Friday, in which um, what India has recently done, the most atrocious thing, you know, in addition to the past few years of targeting uh, Muslims, you know, you know lynching, killings. I mean, we're talking about a, a radically different situation. And, mm -hmm. of course, there were recently also disenfranchising. I mean, taking citizenship away from almost 2 million Indians uh, who in, in Assam. So, I mean, just a real, what you can um, call a, a semi or a pure fascist uh, uh, government right now in India. So, in addition to that, what they did on August 5th, and this was very interesting, uh, when this was after the meeting of Trump and Imran Khan in Washington, uh, where Trump, you know, he d doesn't know what he's saying or does he really mean it, but he, he said, oh, I, I would help the meet, uh, I would like to mediate, you know, and uh, offer my services between India and Pakistan on Kashmir. And uh, that that's great, but, uh, you know, no, because no American, every American uh, leader has known that uh, they will not touch this issue because India doesn't want it touched by anyone else, mm -hmm. uh, even though there are UN resolutions on it saying that it is an international issue. It's an international disputed territory. So uh, what uh, Modi did pretty much right after uh, he even heard these comments is on August 5th, uh, what we referred to earlier was he uh, nullified abrogated a part of the constitution 370 mm -hmm. of the indian constitution that gave kashmir uh some type of special status uh that gave uh, for example prevented uh, uh indians from other parts of india to migrate and settle and buy land in, in kashmir so to protect the the demo the demography of, of kashmiris themselves uh but of course in 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 reality uh particularly since 19 uh, the late 1980s, after the rigged elections and the mass uprising in Kashmir, it's been a horrendous military occupation with more than 700,000 troops. Uh, they're the most militarized zone in the entire world. Uh, and so on August 5th, even that minimal kind of concession to the Kashmiris, he, he abrogated from the constitution illegally, took over, annexed Kashmir again, this is an internationally disputed territory with 11 UN resolutions on it. Uh, he, he just annexed it unilaterally and uh, has put a, a, a brutal curfew in, in place in which in addition to the 700 or so thousand soldiers, he sent thousands and thousands of more. So it is, uh, it is a horrendous siege. Um, it has become a prison. 
uh, an open-air prison just like uh, like Gaza. That's what's happened uh, to these uh, 8 million Kashmiris. And, and I think so, it's also important uh, for, for listeners to know, uh, we've, we've talked about this a, a few times before, just, in, just to name some of the uh, atrocities that have taken place, whether we're talking about the uh, those who have disappeared without, you know, without a trace, uh, the the vast property damage that has taken place. And these are the the, the simple things. But then we when we get into the number of rapes, uh, sexual assaults Absolutely. that have taken place. Uh, and of course, this this is also uh, whenever you hear about one offense, you should assume that there are many more that have not been reported. Uh, the number of Absolutely. what what they refer to as uh, dead eyes, uh, uh, patients, because the Indian military, they use, they're allowed to use uh, shotgun, uh, basically pellets. Yeah, pellet guns. That's yes. Right. Uh-huh. And they're shooting, uh, and they're not shooting center mass or uh, below the, the waist. They're shooting uh, right. towards the heads. And so you have, I mean, a countless number of people who are losing losing their their eyesight young people old um uh the 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 accounts of of torture um just i mean it is it is truly oh, abominable what is going on there so i just wanted to make absolutely. sure we connect that that number that 700,000 troops to a sustained uh system of uh, aggression and repression and violence towards the kashmiri people no that's very important i mean just to give a sense since 19 19- uh, 89, uh, close to about, uh, and this may be even a conservative estimate, we don't know. Again, like, uh, it, it's not like they're allowing journalists to move freely there. Right. But uh, about what, uh, roughly 100,000 Kashmiris have been killed. Yeah. In addition to that, where you are absolutely correct, a mass rape as, as a weapon of war has been used by the Indian Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, these uh, so-called encounter killings, they... Uh, which is uh, completely fictitious, but they just uh, well, you know, they, we we saw these uh, Kashmiris getting together and and uh, and they were about to attack us. Completely false and fabricated uh, account. What they call and 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 thousands of disappearances. Just young, young uh, many uh, boys just disappeared. Their parents don't know where they are right now. They have just arrested just within uh, a, a week. About uh, 2,000 uh, uh, 2, individuals. Again, the parents don't know where they are uh, in Kashmir. They've completely arrested the entire political leadership of Kashmir, even the even sections of the leadership that uh, was pro-India. They've taken wow. them away as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, and the, this is this is horrendous. When you go there and. And uh, they say, well, you know, when, when we're not using uh, real live bullets and uh, or not bombing the place, uh, we were just using pellet guns. And, and that's why you have a significant, uh, sizable number of Kashmiris who are blind to be precisely because of those pellet guns because they aim right towards the eye. So it has been an atrocious occupation before and it's become even worse now. How did uh, Prime Minister Khan, how did his address um, uh, reflect or did his address reflect the atrocities that have been taking place and uh, just just the vile nature of, of this aggression? Right, right. And, and, and so here it was a convergence of uh, of, of 
obviously Kashmiri solidarity activists within the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, who since this uh, act by the Indian government on August 5th and next Kashmir, who have been mobilizing since and who timed it very well with uh, this U.N. General Assembly week uh, in which these leaders, Modi, would be there and and uh, especially with Imran Khan's speech because they, they knew that uh, Imran has, I mean, since that time, obviously, been commenting on it and they knew that he would he would bring it up uh, here as well so and, and they had uh, on uh, at, at Times Square stand with Kashmir uh, and large large protests uh, there against Modi actually both in uh, Houston and then of course in New York as well mm -hmm. at the General Assembly meeting and so in, in Prime Minister Imran Khan's speech uh, you had other issues touched upon as well, mm -hmm. uh, climate change and and also the the way the global north uh, exploits the global south and particularly particularly collaborates with global the the ruling elites of the global south to plunder these countries and that this needs to end. And so that one of these you made that point. He also spoke extensively leading up to Kashmir about Islamophobia and how this is allowing the the kind of uh, the visceral uh, hatred, contempt, uh, and disenfranchisement of Muslims is enabling all of these wars, massacres, discrimination uh, to take place uh, against Muslims, be it in India, be it in Western countries, be it all over uh, the world. Uh, and so he was saying that this is one of the most dangerous phenomena to have emerged and governments throughout uh, the world are deploying it for their for their own purposes. And uh, it's uh, and that uh, Muslims are being uh, affected in, in the millions by this, either in, in context of war or day to day discrimination, so on and so forth. And and he, and 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 then the final point was about. Uh, what India has been doing, and he has he spoke very passionately about how he, from the first day in office, has begged the Indian government to come to the negotiating table, to to start peace talks, to try to you know come to some type of re political resolution to, to their conflict, and he has made uh, non-stop overtures. And has been ignored and rebuffed by the Indian government throughout, to the extent that uh, in February the Indian government there was a, um, uh, a suicide bombing by uh, an Indian boy who had actually been utterly humiliated and brutalized by the Indian army before, and so this Kashmiri kid undertook this attack on an army checkpoint, an Indian army checkpoint. And the Indians blame, I mean, this is <laughs> like what we were saying before, mm -hmm. They uh, the, the, the blame always comes to Pakistan. So the Indians blame Pakistan that this must have been a Pakistani, uh, you know, some some uh, ISI military operation to do that. It's just right. a Kashmiri boy. I mean, the, the Western press did a whole profile of the, of the kid. And so they use that as, a, as an excuse to send uh, Indian jets, not just into Kashmir, far into Pakistani territory, never done. I mean, right. after the two countries became nuclear powers, uh, the, uh, the, they have never had exchanges like this uh, because, I mean, the, 
now it's a whole different ball game once uh, two countries are, are nuclear powered countries. Right. So they went deep, deep into uh, and Imran Khan uh, made a really <laughs> a ni- a nice uh, joke about this in, in this talk. He said, that, you know, then they went deep into our territory and, 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 and bombed some areas, claimed to have killed 360 uh, militants uh, in their in their training uh, areas. Uh, which was a lie. There's no evidence of that. What what, what happened was, uh, you know, the, the massive kind of tree planting program of uh, Imran Khan. So, so some trees were uh, destroyed, and he says we're very pained about that as well. I mean, right. uh, but it was a complete <laughs> lie, uh, uh, and so the, 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 there was nothing that was bombed. And so the Pakistanis responded by just sending some. Uh, uh, the, their their planes around the border, not to do anything actually, just to say that look, you know, you can do that. We can also cross the border if you want to do that. The line of control in in Kashmir, mm-hmm. but the Indians then decided they wanted to have a dog fight, uh, <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and uh, unfortunately they they lost. <laughs> and so one of their jets uh, fell in Indian territory. The other one fell in uh, Pakistan side of Kashmir. Mm-hmm. But what did the Pakistan uh, the pilot uh, fortunately survive? Uh, and what did the Pakistanis do? What did Imran Khan immediately call for? Return the pilot back to the Indians. That's right. Uh, and the pilot, uh, uh, his, uh, I mean, he said that they treated me so well, and I mean, complete contrast to what's going on in India. Mm-hmm. Absolute co- uh, uh, contrast to, to the way they are dealing with Pakistan. So. So that's how Imran Khan started. He said that I wanted us to have peace and and to negotiate and to ameliorate, uh, improve the lives of Kashmiris uh, and to you know uh, bring stability to the subcontinent. Uh, and instead, Modi's government has been doing this. And so then he spoke very passionately about what's what uh, India did on August fifth. How it has violated the UN's uh, eleven resolutions and Security Council resolution uh, that calls for a referendum or a plebiscite uh, in Kashmir for the right to self determination. Never has happened. The Indians have never allowed it. Mm-hmm. And he went on to say that this is uh, uh, this will be a moral failing of the United Nations. That if it cannot hold uh, Modi and the Indian government responsible and accountable, in, initially right now for even the atrocities and the curfew that it has put in place, but in the long run for upholding its own uh, resolutions on the conflict that should have been enforced now for more than 70 years and still have not been. Speaking uh, of that, so, let me ask you this, Professor. Yes. Um, since... There have been almost a million, 700,000 Indian troops uh, that have been in the Kashmir uh, all these years. That has been just just help me understand this. Has that presence been in violation of the U.N. uh, uh, U.N. resolution? Oh, absolutely. I think. And and it's and it's not just that. I mean, uh, the, the violation has even occurred. So the, the really increase in the number of Indian troops happened after 1989 because in 87 there were elections in Kashmir that were totally rigged uh, mm-hmm. in which uh, the Indians got all their pro-India politicians in power. After that, an uprising began uh, in 89, mass Kashmir uprising, 
and 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 uh, large non-violent uprising took place uh, against the Indian, um, against what happened in the elections, and that's when the real increase in troops happened. But of course, um, even before then, the Indians have always been in violation of the of the resolution because that called for a speedy uh, uh, referendum to take place, immediately demilitarize the zone and for a referendum and a plebiscite to, to, to take place. And uh, the Indian Prime Minister Nehru signed this, I mean, you know, agreement it was, uh, but they have never implemented it. And because of, and that's geopolitics. During mm -hmm. the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union that would, uh, uh, that would have obviously prevented any type of implementation of this resolution. And now it's the United States that would <laughs> prevent implementation of this uh, resolution. So they have been in violation before, and now it's in radical violation because they have unilaterally annexed the territory. So, so, th so this is where the uh, the potential impact of the Kashmiri Solidarity Movement, the uh, the Free Kashmiri Movement that is going on here in the U.S., um, where it has a potential to have impact on our presence within the UN Security Council, and when when votes come up on issues like that, or that one in particular, where the U.S. does not uh, uh, defend or allow for this continued occupation uh, to take place. Uh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. It's uh, obviously at, at the governmental level, it's going to take a lot of pressure and, and grassroots mobilization and, uh, and so on. But what uh, needs to be emphasized is uh, within the U.S. and I would argue globally, uh, and in many other Western countries, um, so I, I'm in the U.K. right now here, mm -hmm. the, the awareness uh, now of uh, Kashmir and, and what uh, the extent of the brutality that's been taking place, not just now. I mean, now, now that it's ha totally been annexed, people are now learning about, okay, what's been going on for the past 20, 30 years, in fact, right. and beyond uh, to the Kashmiri people that say, you know, they may, they would, may know about Palestine or they may know about some other area. Uh, they did not know really about Kashmir. That's just been hidden from the international community and the international media because of uh, India's power and uh, the ge geopolitical influence it's wielded. It just has always attempted to hide Kashmir and what it's up to in that in that area. And and it can no longer do that. That's that's the main difference today. Now, now you have a really uh, solidarity movement that's being built up along the lines of the solidarity movement with with the with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very much going along that model, uh, and of course, which goes along a model of an older generation of the of the solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Yes. Um, so, so you have uh, this, which is inc incredibly encouraging, uh, along with the uh, a stature of someone like Prime, Prime Minister Imran Khan, who is uh, able to be a, a, a real um, uh, um, uh, effective statesman when it comes to uh, persuading countries uh, that this is a serious issue, um, first and foremost, because of the brutality that's being inflicted on the Kashmiri people, um, and and secondly, because this is these are two nuclear armed powers right. that that the international community is willing to allow to 
to just you know go back and forth on uh, on any anything could happen. And so he did. He raised that issue that uh, whenever India is, talks about going to war, we will do. He he said that this is just mindless talk. I mean, how how can you they even think about that? The, and so he he is certainly now. I mean, I, even he was interviewed on many Western media outlets. So you, it, it's 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 kind of difficult now to really defame and uh, 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 portray Pakistan as as this kind of uh, really rogue state that uh, that's causing all these problems. When Imran Khan sounds like one of the most sensible and reasonable leaders in the entire world. Uh, right. right now, I in, mean, in I contrast, him and the, mm, yeah, yes, him and, and it, the him and the him and the New Zealand uh, Prime Minister, maybe the the two best leaders <laughs> in the world right now. <laughs> Yeah, and I was going to say, especially in contrast to a nation that has just taken taken away the citizenship of two million of its uh, Muslim citizens. Um, That's right. I mean, that in itself, when you think about the promotion of democratic values uh, and pluralism and just, you know, just human dignity in general, that flies in the face of every, you know, every uh, uh, semblance of of democratic uh, decency. Absolutely. But let, 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 let me, if I, if I could just say well, just one thing to that, and uh, just uh, and uh, what you just mentioned about what uh, the re- removal of citizenship of two million, what the, also the just the sheer um, uh, brutality being inflicted upon in- Indian Muslims as well, uh, themselves in terms of lynching, killings, you know, and, and Indian Hindu uh, fanatic will smell uh, maybe beef on the breath of, of some Muslim. And you'll kill him, um, and so this is how how mad the the, the country has become. In Pakistan, Imran Khan has spent the, just been one year in the, in office, first time ever in politics. He and this poor country is spending so much money in rebuilding and re- renovating all the religious sites for the Hindus, for the Sikhs, for Buddhists. He has allowed, he has opened the, um, the border uh, at any time that religious uh, pilgrimages, uh, pilgrimages want uh, and pilgrims wants, want to come to, particularly the Sikhs, to their, because they have a lot of sites within Pakistan, uh, to come there uh, freely uh, across the border. I mean, this is just, I mean, you know, you never know. You're going to have Indian agents be a part of that. But, but in terms of religious tolerance it is just i mean unbelievable and again i, I want to raise that look look at the, the contrast uh, yeah. with the <laughs> with yeah. india <laughs> wow wow now you know i'm glad that you brought in uh the sikhs as well uh, uh into this conversation because i'm thinking about what is the uh, the level of importance that you might associate with uh solidarity between uh, Indian Americans, um, whether they're Muslim, Hindu, or Sikh, or, or, or whatever, and their rejection of this type of um, uh, this polarization that they're that uh, that Modi and that Trump is right. looking to promote, uh, because I think about Devon Avenue here in Chicago, and you know right, right. that is I mean it's a place where you know you have you have Hindus, you have Muslims. Uh, and the, the South yes. Asian community there, it is very much, you know, 
you you feel like a balance and a and a and a just a, just a normal sense of this is just this is just how we are, uh, which right you know it's totally in uh, in opposition to what we're seeing taking place in India right now, and to Absolutely. what the BJP represents and what Trump represents. So how important is it for for uh, for for Indian Americans and and elsewhere to be to to show that solidarity and be vocal that we're not going to uh to to play into this absolutely that that this is not going to be done in our name as um indian americans people of indian origins and this is not the india that uh that that we knew and that we came from absolutely there i have and and that is why i wanted to emphasize that there were uh many indian protesters uh, Indian American protesters, uh, both at the Houston event mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and at the Kashmir Solidarity Rally in uh, New York as well. So it, it, I do I do not in any way want to uh, portray you know the entire Indian American community as um, or even the entire specifically Indian American Hindu community mm-hmm. as being behind this. Right. Uh, I think that. Uh, there, these uh, the the most um, uh, ardent defenders of this type of Hindu fascism and 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 Modi are come from uh, the, um, the 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 business classes. A lot a lot of I mean, there's been a lot of research into this, uh, and uh, I mean, ironically, you know, you would think that the kind of the more educated you are in IT and this and that more sensible but but no i mean in fact uh, that's that's where a lot of the money is going uh to the bjp and and coming from from the uh, it sector from the wealthy indians uh hindu indians etc that that's where a lot of uh, the support is coming from so no i, I don't want to portray that all in indian um hindus uh, are supportive of this in fact there are many that are in firm opposition uh, to this and saying that this is not uh, the India that uh, that they knew before and that has been uh, the uh, the you know the India from since forty seven till nineteen ninety mm-hmm. in which it was non aligned in which it was uh, supportive of the Palestinians and uh, and now you have uh, you know it's interesting that Modi was the is the first uh, Indian Prime Minister to visit Israel. Um, India did not even recognize have diplomatic relations with India uh, with Israel before. So it shows you how things wow. have changed, yes. how much uh, things have changed um, yes, since indeed. that time. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, Professor Janae, it is always a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything in particular you want to leave on our final moments uh, right now with the audience? Sure, absolutely. Um, just briefly, it's I think. We're at a moment now in which uh, the the audience uh, should should be recognizing that uh, the world is changing, and 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 that always is the case. So the perceptions of countries uh, also need to change with that because they're changing realities uh, going on. I mean, it's whether it's the United States itself. Or countries like India and Pakistan, uh, changes uh, and radical changes have taken place, mm-hmm. and so the media narrative around a country like 
Pakistan uh, uh, needs to change. And I see that change happening. Uh, and I think that there was there's been Islamophobia and there's been specifically Pakistanophobia as well mm. that you have seen. Uh, and I think that that listeners just need to know that these uh, old, uh, the way we had the old portrayals of these countries, well, you know, India is the land of, of Gandhi and, and, yo- and, and yoga and this type of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and just peaceful and this it's actually the opposite right now. There's, <laughs> there's uh, any sense of Gandhian non-violence. Forget about it, you know. So, uh, hmm. uh, it, and so that's we we have to do a better job at actually uh, examining what is going on in the ground realities and what are people actually doing, their leadership and the societies, uh, rather than stick to old uh, perceptions about countries oh well this country's always been like this and uh and the military's always been the, the bad the bad guys here and and of course india's a great democracy huge democracy and this type and secular i mean it's it's and and and, and meanwhile it's committing massive atrocities right. so i think that uh this is what i i would like to leave the audience with that uh they as the world tra- changes dramatically and countries within it change we also need to change our perceptions of, mm. of, of these things. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, to get your perspective again in the very near future. I hope so too, inshallah, definitely. All right. As-salamu alaykum. All right, family, we thank you all for joining us for another edition of the program. Our guest was Junaid Ahmed. He's the director of the Center for Middle Eastern Politics and is assistant professor at the University of Lahore in Pakistan. He's also the secretary general of the International Movement for a Just World. Uh, We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. With that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.